0: Guys, uh, open your Bibles with me to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6. And, and I'm going to read to you um, in a minute. I'm going to read to you beginning at verse 16, going through the end of the chapter. But before we do that, there's something that I think would help us. There is an episode, there is an event that occurs uh, in the first 15 verses. that I, If we just had a little bit of understanding of that... I think it will enhance our enjoyment of and our understanding of our text once we get to it. Our text is in 16 to 23. But uh, let me just quickly tell you a little bit about those first 15 verses. Gang, um, David's first official act, when it, once he became king over all of Israel. You remember there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Once there is finally a unity of the whole nation, his first official act is that he wants to go and get the Ark of the Covenant and bring it to Jerusalem. I think it says a whole lot about his priorities. That is, that, that God was going to be at the center of Israel. But his, his his first concern is get the Ark of the Covenant. You've heard of that. The Ark, that's the thing that Indiana Jones looked for, you know. Uh, the mercy seats on top of it. And, it. and it was back there in the holiest of the holies, which represented the presence of God. Well, that Ark of the Covenant had been lost to the Philistines about 20 years prior to this moment. And they gave it back, but it never found its way back to Jerusalem. So David's first official act is, I'm going to get the Ark and bring it back to Jerusalem. But And by the way, that's what's recorded for you. The first attempt to get the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem is recorded for you in verses 1 through 15. It was a disaster. Remember, they did it wrong. It was supposed to be carried by the by the priests and by the Levites and on poles and all that business. And, and they put it on a cart. And as it was moving along, the oxen stumbled and the cart got shaky. And, and Uzzah, remember his name, Uzzah reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant so it wouldn't fall off the cart. And God struck him dead. And David is all upset and he's, well, what have I done? And he names the place Perez Uzzah. That is where God broke out against us. And so, the point is, um, our text, beginning at verse 16, is the second attempt to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. And what I'm suggesting is that part of the joy and the excitement that you're about to read about comes as a result of having failed once. That is, it's excitement in the light of failure. David and all Israel failed to do it right, but this time they get it right. And so all this excitement that you're going to read about, part of it can be explained by the fact that they had had such a miserable failing the first time. Are you ready? Now, let's read the text, beginning at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David Leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows, shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will make Mary before the Lord. And I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God, it endures forever. In case you've not been here in a while, this is, um, this is a series. Actually, it's the fourth and final uh, lesson in this series on the life of Michael, um, a woman who married David. And we have been talking about David being a type of Christ and Michael's response to him and all that. That's, so this is the final uh, edition of that little series. On this occasion that we have just read about, uh, David's route with the, uh, with the Ark of the Covenant, his route goes right by his own house. And, um, there standing at the window watching everything unfold is his wife, Michael. Everybody involved in this whole, uh, event is having a ball. Uh, Leaping and dancing and shouting and singing. Except one. Michael. She looks out the window and watches as her husband gets carried away. Uh, Watches him as he shouts and sings and dances. And we're told she despised him in her heart. It is a display of... of. uh, Unbelievable extravagance in terms of worship and praise for God. There's there's a there's a little sentence in the Chronicles of Narnia. You, you uh, if you read it, um, the. The Prince Caspian one, you know, there's, there's eight, I think, uh, Chronicles of Narmia, but the one they just made a movie out of. But there's a, there's a scene, or the, uh, right before the war takes place between the forces of Caspian and the forces of Maraz, the Telmarines. And Aslan shows up. Remember that? Aslan shows up and he roars and, and everything comes to life. The trees and the, the animals and, and the people and they, and they, they burst into this celebration. C.S. Lewis Lewis calls it a romp, but he said something about the the, in the the book of Prince Caspian. He says it was like blind men's bluff, only everyone behaved as if they were blindfolded. Can't you just imagine that? Blind men's bluff, you know, you got only one of them. But in this instance, everybody was blind. And they were all just lost and enjoying themselves. My point is, that's the kind of scene that you see here um, being described as the Ark of the Covenant is being brought to Jerusalem. It was uh, almost like blind man's bluff and everybody was acting like they were blindfolded. <laughs> How about that. Just having a great time. Everybody was involved except one. Michael. His wife. David had laid aside all of his royal robes and his kingly garments, and he had gotten lost in wonder, love, and praise. We just sang that, by the way. David goes home. He's all excited to tell his wife um, to have her share in his joy, which 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 was kind of odd. I mean, why, why wasn't she with him in the first place? But she wasn't. But he goes home to... to um, Share all of his excitement with her and walks in the house and there she stands. Hands on her hips. Speaking with contempt dripping out of her every word. Well, the king was quite a spectacle today. Ha! You, uh, you would uh, expose yourself to the servant girls. Sure didn't, sure wasn't very kingly of you. You ought to be, you ought to act more kingly. Like my father. My father would have never done something like that. No sirree, Bob. My father, my father dressed in, in royal robes and, and accompanied himself with pomp and circumstance. And he created a religion where where the God served him. Not him serving the gods. You see, for Michael, God had become just a social amenity, a a political backer. That's all he was. And so, to watch her husband in that kind of display, she has nothing but contempt for 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 her husband. God. Um, Was not in her uppermost in her thoughts. She was embarrassed. She was embarrassed by the behavior of her own husband. And then, not only embarrassed, but contemptuous. You know, um, Alexander White, who was an old Scottish preacher, said something I've always loved. He said, Those who are deaf always despise those who dance. Yeah. Those who are deaf. They always despise those who dance. She would rather have him dressed in anything than poor men's clothes. And then she, she goes on to accuse him of something immoral. He exposed himself. And by the way, guys, um, not to embarrass anyone, but Robert Alter, who is a great Jew, Hebrew scholar, teaches at Berkeley, Robert Alter says the word that's translated exposed here or uncovered himself is clearly used in a sexual sense. That is, he exposed his nakedness in this parade. The implication is, I'm a king's daughter and you're riffraff. She speaks to him, I, I don't know whether you noticed this, but she does it twice in this, in verse 16 and verse 20. In verse 20, um, in, in verse she, she says, um, how the king of Israel honored himself today. She speaks of him in the third person, won't even, won't even call him by name. She's not, he's not her husband, no, the king of Israel. And the king of Israel acted like a piece of white trash. What follows, beginning in verse 20, is the only dialogue between this royal couple that's in, that's included in the story. David replies. This is the only time you see this in this old story about him and Michael. He replies, and he says in essence, Oh, Michael, I'm not the one who was exposed. Uh, the Holy Spirit has exposed the true condition of your heart. She is the daughter of Saul. It's mentioned twice. And um, David reminds her of that, that you're the daughter of Saul. And it, it seems to me that David for the first time realizes that her heart does not belong to him. She's not Michael, my wife. She's Michael... The daughter of Saul. And then he explains, or at least tries to, um, why what he did is in no way contemptible. He explains that his audience was not people. He was dancing before the Lord. He was dancing before Yahweh. He wasn't dancing to please people. He was dancing in a in an act of worship and praise. And, and, the, and the implication is what a privilege it is to, to, to be able to display something before the Lord. But, but she was completely incapable of entering into that kind of excitement, that kind of joy. Michael, Michael would prefer. Um, she'd be more comfortable walking beside the ark with Uzzah. You know, um, dignified and stately and proper and dead. But she mocked David, who uh, danced before the ark before the Lord, in a reckless and a daring and careless kind of way and alive. David seemed to understand what Irenaeus meant. To, you know that name Irenaeus who said the glory of God is a human fully alive. You see guys, um, only those whose hearts are are softened by the Holy Spirit can understand what's going on here. Those, when, when the heart is hard, Joy is offensive. You know, the world tolerates religion, but love for Christ? Uh, they're not into that. She, um, she's a stranger to any kind of heartfelt love for God. But just to point out something in the text, David is, enjoys this freedom to dance before the Lord. And that, that prepositional phrase, before the Lord, is mentioned five times in this little text. Verse 14, verse 16, verse 17, and twice in verse 21. Before the Lord, before the Lord, before the Lord, before the Lord. David has this incredible freedom to to fling himself at God because he was doing it, not because he wanted people's approval, but because he wanted God's approval. He wasn't after the smile of the audience. He was after the smile that only God can give him. Michael wanted people's approval. David wanted God's. It's the difference, ladies and gentlemen, between a worshiper and an idolater. One pursues the smile of the audience of one. The idolater pursues the smile of the audience of many. You know, I know I've said this to you before, um, but it does illustrate what I'm trying to say. But before I even say it, I want to tell you, I'm not here. I wish I were here. I want to be what I'm about to say, but I'm not. But this is what I want to be. Here it goes. I hope you like me. I hope you say nice things about me. I hope you tell your friends that I'm the greatest preacher that you've ever heard. But if you don't, it's okay. Because I don't need you. Because I'm doing this not before you. But before the Lord. You see, guys, there's such bondage when people smile is what you want. There's such freedom when you do it before the Lord. There's such a slavery for people's approval and smiles and strokes and applause. And Michael's the one who's enslaved. And David is the one who is free. And then as this story of Michael comes to a close, the narrator of the story... Leaves us with a summary of Michael in one verse. I want to read it to you again. It's verse 23. He says, and Michael, the daughter of Saul. Not Michael, the wife of David. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. She's barren. She's cursed with the worst that a woman from the ancient Oriental world could have. Barrenness barrenness equals worthlessness in this culture. I've told you about this before, guys. I told you on Mother's Day. Barrenness for a woman was disastrous because her whole sense of worth was tied to what she produced. And and, and the culture dictated that because, um, for instance, economically, every business in this culture was a family business. So the more kids you have, the more employees you had. But if you don't have, if you're barren, you got no employees. You're sunk economically. Safety and security. Only four out of ten children made it to adulthood. And the, your safety and security depended on the size of your army. But if you didn't have any kids, you didn't have a big army. And you were sunk militarily. But in terms of your future, social security, there was no such thing. Your kids were your social security. You got no kids got no future. Barrenness, childlessness meant worthlessness. And yet, she'd been so privileged. David's, or excuse me, Saul's bloodline would come to an end. Saul would be forgotten from now on because Michael will have no children. Robert Alter, I mentioned him a moment ago, but he is a a, a very excellent Hebrew scholar. Robert Alter called verse 23 a poised ambiguity. I love that. A poised ambiguity. Here's what he meant. Was she barren because David said, I'll never sleep with you again. You'll never get close to me again. And he rejected her. Was that why she was barren or was it some curse of God that genetically or biologically or physically she was rendered sterile? We're never told. Alter said, probably both. But my point is simply, her story ends in verse 23, being told, or us being told, that basically she's worthless. It's a story of of a fickle, fleeting, temporary, exterior love that ends in tragedy now as we wrap up this little series on Michael I want to leave you with four lessons four lessons that are brought to us courtesy of Michael four things I think that grow out of this story about Michael that I that I hope we will learn as we have studied Michael here's the first one And foremost in terms of importance. Gang, until you have a spousal love for Jesus Christ, you will be empty and barren. Whether you're married or single, that's not the issue. Until you have discovered a spousal love for Jesus Christ. The issue in Christianity guys is an intimacy for a person not some kind of fling. It's it's demand is for an intimacy with the person. And and Michael lived all of her life never understanding that. It, you 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 marvel at how hard the heart gets that that never sees... The beauty of this husband of hers. But God's worthlessness is the result of never developing a spousal love for Jesus Christ. And his beauty is never seen. Live your life without seeing the beauty of Christ. And you end up Barren worthless like michael the goal of christianity is to introduce you to a faithful husband for you to have for you to have spousal love for him anything short of that is a temporary fickle exterior love that's the first lesson here's the second gang the the best gauge of one's spiritual condition is not your past It's your present. That is, the last place that you want to rest on your laurels is over your soul. What is the Lord doing presently? Not what did he do 15 years ago. What is he doing presently in the midst of my soul, in the midst of my heart? Gang, don't forget this. The issue is always what's going on in your heart. What is the Lord doing on the interior of my soul? Which thus, which then gets verified on the outside. Yes. But it's never the other way around. That's what Pharisees did, guys. They built a religion that was outside in. This religion is one that's inside out. What is the Lord presently doing to alter your insides that will inevitably show up on the outside. Michael never gave David her heart. She was Saul's daughter. She was never truly David's wife. She may have looked like his wife on the outside. That's not the issue. Not what is the Lord, not what did he do 20 years ago, but what is he doing now? Third, guys, um, one of the most disarming and glorious snapshots, at least in my opinion, the pictures, portraits of God, anywhere in the Bible, is found in Rome don't turn but Romans 10 verse 21 can I read it to you this is a description of God all day and by the way it's a self description it's a piece of self description god describes himself like this all day long i have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people what i'm suggesting guys is that this story about michael is a brief commentary on that picture. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. This story about Michael is a commentary on that. In the midst of this whole chapter in David's life, David is 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 always longing for Michael to come back. Do you remember the the episode where where Abner comes and says, I want to make a peace treaty with you. And and David says, well, that's that's awfully nice of you, but I'm not going to talk to you until you bring me Michael. But David, she's an adulteress. I know she's an adulteress. But bring me Michael. David, David, she's been unfaithful to you. I know that. But bring me Michael. Guys, it's a long-suffering and a beckoning Savior that's being portrayed in the life of David and his relationship to Michael. It's, It's his faithfulness to a faithless bride. His faithfulness to a rebellious bride. And it's his faithfulness that is never questioned. It is that disobedient and contrary bride that is the problem. I I add just this. There is no security like the security of being loved by Jesus Christ. No amount of my moral failings will lead him to divorce me. Yes, she is a rebellious, contrary, disobedient bride. And yet he says, Bring me Michael. Here's my fourth lesson, and but I need to tell you a story before um before I make the point. Does the name Somerset Mom ring a bell with anybody? Somerset Mom was a was an author. Um, who, who wrote a lot. He was a Pulitzer Prize winner with his book, uh, Of Human Bondage. Did you read that? Um, I read it years ago. They made a movie out of it, uh, Of Human Bondage. Uh, Betty Davis starred in it. And she became a star as a result of her role in Of Human Bondage, a book based on a book written by Somerset Mall. He wrote another book. And in this other book, he did not win a Pulitzer Prize, but he, um, it was made into a movie. I read the book and I saw the movie. You know, they're always different. But the, the movie was The Painted Veil. Based on the book, The Painted Veil by Somerset Mom. Maybe you saw it. Uh, uh, Edward Norton and um, Naomi Watts starred in the movie. Um, it was, it's a good movie. And if you haven't seen it, I'm about to ruin it for, for you. But um, um, Kitty who was played by Naomi Watts, was this upper-class socialite who was um, shallow and, and bored with her privileged lifestyle, and uh, she was yearning to escape all of the accoutrements of, of wealth, and, and and she was under pressure from her family to get married, particularly her mother. Her mother was thinking, you're getting too old, you're getting too old, you've got to get married, you got to get married. And so, almost on a whim, she's in a flower store one, time, one day, and she runs into a man who had just been recently in her home and has fallen head over heels in, in love with him, with her. His name is Dr. William Fane. And he's, of course, played by Edward Norton. And um, he falls in love with her. And in the um, uh, in the flower shop, proposes to her. And almost on a whim, she says yes and marries him. Almost immediately after they're marrying, they move to Hong Kong, where she commences to have an affair with Charles Townsend. Charles Townsend is this British colonial governmental official. And he turns out to be an abject cad. Just a just a bad, bad dude. Um, I, it's, I can't go into the story, but um, Naomi is caught, or Kitty is caught. She's caught in the midst of this web of infidelity and rejection on the part of Charles Townsend. And she's almost forced... To, to, to go with her husband inland to this little tiny village where there, there's this outbreak of cholera. And so, William Fane is a bacteriologist, kind of socially inept. But he begins to work on the cholera epidemic. And within months, several things happen. First of all, Kitty gets involved in an orphanage. And she begins to watch people loving selflessly. Secondly, she she picks up the esteem that the community has for her husband and how they appreciate all of his hard work and his diligent labors on their behalf. And she watches as the community adores her husband that she despises. The third thing that happens is that her husband, Edward Norton, Dr. William Fane, um, protects her from some Chinese nationalists that were about to... Capture her and do bad things. And he, in this heroic display, stops these armed nationalists and uh, and saves her. All along, her heart begins to soften. And then there is a scene, ladies and gentlemen. It is so poignant and so moving. They're at home. And the fourth thing that happens is, she tells her husband, I'm pregnant. And her husband asks, am I the father? And she says, I mean, (laughs) she's crying and she says, I don't. And then he says, I guess it really doesn't matter, does it? And in that act of forgiveness, she is a changed woman. She falls in love with her husband. And everything from that point on begins to happen Beautifully, and their relationship blossoms, and she begins. She finds this growing love for her husband, and then, of course, he contracts cholera and dies. (laughs) He does. It's awful. In the movie, not in the book, but in the movie, they she moves back to London and carries her son. And on, on just by chance, one afternoon, she runs into Charles Townsend, the guy that she'd had an affair with, and he makes another pass at her, and she dismisses him with a vengeance, a vengeance. I mean, she calls him things, she she uses words that I cannot use from this book. She just rips into him. The little boy says, "Who's that, mother?" And she says, he's a nobody. That's basically where it ends. And the point is, ladies and gentlemen, as this woman began to see how beautiful was her husband, her whole life changed. As she began to taste the beauty of his character and the beauty of forgiveness, her whole being was revolutionized by falling in love with the husband that became more and more beautiful to her. The story of Michael is just the opposite. She was a wife that never saw the beauty of this husband, and she ended up worthless. A tragedy that sadly is repeated again and again in a congregation see the beauty of that faithful husband it will change you forever tell me why will you choose barrenness over beauty Father, I do pray that you will um, give us eyes to see the one who is altogether lovely, the one whose beauty is unsurpassed, unparalleled, the one whose sacrificial life, the one who lived the life that I should have lived and then died the death that I should have died. The one who grants forgiveness to a guilty bride, to a guilty preacher, to a guilty parishioner. The one who, because of his goodness, grants forgiveness where it is not deserved. Father, would you repeat that? great act of redemption even in this room right now. Do that, Father. For the sake of Jesus, we ask it. Amen.